Tonight, if you want to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, we'll be in Acts 17 tonight. Um, next uh, Wednesday, uh, it's kind of a Thanksgiving service is what we do, a little bit different, so we'll take a break from Acts and talk about some of the things that have to do with Thanksgiving, pilgrims and Mayflowers and all those kind of things, but the kids will be in here with us. Um, it'll be a finger food potluck, and then we'll have some a photo display and maybe a video loop of something about our 20 years of ministry here as we want to celebrate that this fall or winter almost, I guess. So if you have any pictures or videos or anything that you haven't sent to us already, thank you for those of you who have. Um, go ahead and get those to us so we can get those included. Even pretty current stuff too. You know, We don't want just old school stuff. We want some new school stuff. So send those to us. Anyway, so that's next Wednesday. We'll be doing that. Finger foods. I don't know what that that is, like pizza rolls and, and stuff like that. Maybe soups. I suppose that'd be all right, too. But, you know, you know, Thanksgiving's Thursday, so you don't want to do a lot of, you know, real cooking. So just pick something frozen out of Hy-Vee and heat it up, and that'll be fine. None of us will complain. Operation Christmas Child's going well, and if you want to hang out with us, uh, we do that from 3 to 7 on, uh, on the weekdays, and then from 1 to 4 on the weekends. So you're welcome to come out for that. This Friday at 7 is our packing party. Um, so you can join us for that. We get the tables set up and we kind of get everything packed for these kids. I don't know. I think we're shooting for a hundred boxes uh, just for that alone. So that'll be fun. Those are the, that's the fruit so far. Those cartons are full of what people have dropped off so far this week, about 16 boxes in each carton there. So we're getting there. All right. Chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through um, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. In tonight's teaching, we're going to go through three different cities, and we won't get to Corinth. That'll be next week. But Dr. Luke takes the time to take us through this rapid-fire mission, basically. He's going to different cities, and uh, Paul is, and we'll discuss this a little bit later on, he's on fire, you know. And so wherever he lands, a fire starts is what it looks like. And this is the first place he stops is Thessalonica. And so he goes into the synagogue, which was his custom, which is great to know. He was just known for that. That's what he would do. Whenever Paul got a chance to talk about Jesus, he did. And you know some people like that. And maybe you're one of those people that does that. But it's our custom. It would be unusual for Paul not to begin to speak about Jesus or to share the gospel with other people. It's just normal. You would never have to draw it out of him. You'd never have to coerce him into saying, you know what, you know, on a plane, hey, where are you headed, buddy? Well, you know, I'm a teacher. You know, what do you teach? Oh, I teach the Bible. I mean, he wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to get that up. He'd be the one, you know, right next to you. So are you going to hell or what? You know, kind of thing. He was like that um, in a good way because he knew the urgency of it. He would minister to the Jews because the Jews, well, they're the ones looking for the Messiah. Honestly, the, the Gentiles weren't so sure they even had one coming. They were hoping, and most of them would attend temple or go to synagogue and be the secondary citizens, Um, but it was never about them. I mean, can you imagine going every single Saturday to go worship and just hearing about them? 
and, and their Messiah and their God and have them look at you on the way out like, oh, you know, oh, you're here kind of thing. That's how they viewed the Gentiles. It was never um, a positive experience for them to go to. But, but like it says here, they were devout. They knew they had no other hope. They had no place else to turn, and that's where they wanted to go. And those kind of people, and you'll notice that when you minister to people about Jesus who don't know the Lord, there's just a couple kinds out there. Some of them have nothing to do with what you have to say, and you're like the first person to knock on their door of their heart. Um, others know they need something, have been desperately looking for something, and that one you know when you hit that door. Because they're all smiles saying, tell me all about it. Tell me all about it. There's hope. Because I've had none until you showed up. Well, Paul shows up here in Thessalonica and begins to speak in the synagogue, explain to them about this Messiah. Because although the Jews were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for a different one. They're looking for a victorious one, a king. Uh, and victory, like we would describe, you know, a worldly victory, not necessarily a spiritual victory. That, that was kind of a cop-out for them. Oh, spiritual victory. What's that? We want Rome overthrown. We want someone like Moses who's going to lead us away from Egypt to make Egypt pay for what they did to us. You know, that's what we want. That's our Messiah. And so Paul, when it says this, Luke writing this about Paul, he would act to reason with them, explain to them with God's word. It says right here, the Messiah is going to have to suffer. That was new to them. They would never hear that on a Saturday, no matter where they were, Jerusalem in the temple or whether they were in a synagogue in their own small town. They would never hear about a suffering Messiah. Rabbis just skipped that stuff because, first of all, they didn't understand it. They couldn't, they couldn't make it mesh together with what they knew about the Messiah from other passages, a victorious one, a king ruling with a rod of iron. We like that stuff. But this death thing, this Psalm 22 thing, these prophecies about a suffering Messiah, well, we're just going to skip those because we're not so sure we understand what that means. And because you don't know, you don't teach it. Nobody wants to look stupid, so they'd skip it. And so these people weren't getting the whole counsel of God. They weren't getting the Old Testament at all, all of it anyway. They're getting cherry-picked, cherry-picked scriptures. It's a dangerous thing. And so Paul coming in was telling them something brand new to a lot of them. I'm reasoning with you that the Messiah has to suffer. As he's explaining this to them, and he's spending time with them, three weeks is all he spends there. Three weeks telling him about this. It's amazing the depth of doctrine that Paul gets into with believers that are three weeks old, because some of them believed. First and second Thessalonians is written to this group here. So after Paul is here and he ministers for three weeks, and some were persuaded, a great multitude of the devout Greeks was persuaded, and some of the leading women were persuaded. That's the church, a brand new, healthy, bouncing baby church, you know, and there it is. And he gives them some serious theology. Now, he leaves and is going to go on to, even tonight, he's going to go to Berea, he's going to go to Athens, and then ends up in Corinth. And when he's in Corinth, he checks back with, how are the Thessalonians doing? And they've got questions about doctrine. And so when you read First and Second Thessalonians, understand this is the second time only that they've been instructed by Paul. And think about the questions that he's answering if you go through those two letters to them. It's amazing as he says, no, 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 no. I know you guys are worried about how some of your relatives have already died and so that maybe they missed the rapture, but that's not the case at all. And he's explaining to them the eschatology and some of their mistakes and their, <laughs> their forward thinking of, of prophecy being fulfilled. That's amazing. 
It's amazing that God, Paul had three weeks, and I don't know how, how much time. It says three Sabbaths. I hope that he taught more than three days, not just on Saturdays. You know, Even if it was for eight hours on each of those Saturdays, that's not very long. That's 24 hours of teaching God's word. And to leave a church like that with 24 hours of teaching, maybe intensive, obviously, but hopefully other nights just to make myself feel better that he got into some other these, other these doctrines, but he taught them everything. And in three weeks, they were ready to go on their own. That's amazing. He made disciples of Jesus Christ. What a great example of what it means to make a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do as a church, to make disciples, followers of Jesus. Here's everything I know. Now walk with Christ and go on. It's okay. Hey, we've got some questions. What are your questions? Okay, here's some other stuff. Now walk with Christ. To walk with Christ is so important. To have that actual walk and to not be spoon-fed every single week. Here it is. Here's your stuff. I'm giving you everything you need. Now run with it. And they do. And they ran with it. I am convinced, and this is me saying this. I don't know that it's absolutely true. But I think that anybody that, any church, any denomination that has taken the book of Revelation as to not be actual, to not be um, literal, and it's going to come to pass, I see them falling away. Every single one of them. Every single, you can't name a denomination that I know of or that you know of that has taken the book of Revelation literally as going to be a fulfillment of Scripture. We should be looking for it. I, I just can't think of one. Prophecy and understanding the future for believers and to know that there's a hope, and to know how things are going to go, to have something to rest upon, to look upon, is vital to a healthy fellowship, to know this, to be looking for it. If you don't think the book of Revelation is true, or that it's going to happen, or that it's coming, or that it's something in the past, oh, it's allegory, it's just our nature, then you have no hope, you have nothing to look forward to, and your hope is death. I'm just going to die, and that's the way it is, and we'll see what happens. And there's no life in it anymore, in those fellowships. They just fall away. They die. Prophecy is very important. God gives us the book of Revelation and all the other prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet to give us a hope and an understanding that our God is faithful, that although the present circumstances don't look hopeful right now, there is hope. There is light. This is where we're headed. This is why these things are taking place. This isn't just something we need to resign ourselves to. This is something we go through. When these things come to pass, because when they come to pass, when they're over with, this is where we end up. And it gives the church just the hope that they need. And so he takes this little church of Thessalonica and he pours into them, not only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, doesn't hand out coloring pages. You know, look, Jesus lets children sit on his lap and stuff. I mean, they got into it. And within three weeks, they were running as a fellowship and off and running devoted to God devoted to Jesus, on fire for him. And so that's where we start off. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God wants to reason with us. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God doesn't expect us just to uh, accept. I want you to believe on me, but I want you to believe on me for a reason. There's a reason. I don't want to become a Christian because, well, 75% of Americans are Christians. Therefore, I want to be with the majority group. That's no reason to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior or to even attend a church. 
You want to believe on Christ because it's reasonable, because it makes sense, because it explains, because it's the only one that falls in line and and actually uh, interprets it and gives us an understanding of where we are, why we are, who we are, why we exist, why we breathe, why we were created, why things are the way they are and they happen the way they are. It gives us a reason and a hope for everything. And so Paul says, I'm going to sit down and reason with you. And God wants to reason with us. Let's talk about this. Give me your best. Shoot. Give me your best question. Well, how come this? This is why. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, how come this then? Well, because of this. Oh. So there are answers to these tough questions. So we aren't just walking around saying, well, I just believe, and I don't know, I don't know why that contradicts, but I'm just going to believe anyway. No, no, no. Let's talk about the contradiction. Let's talk about something that you're working out. Let's figure this thing out. And let's talk about it because there is an answer. There's a reason for the hope which lies within us. We don't just hope for hope's sake. It's reasonable. And he takes the time to do that. Verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, and there's that group too, and they heard the same word, but they didn't receive it, became envious. Took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, meaning Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. There's always this group. Now, why didn't they believe? Well, I believe the answer is there right in that, in that verse 5. They, they, the Jews who were not persuaded were not persuaded because they were envious. There's just something about being the one in the room that knows and has the answers. The people that everybody looks to. Nobody likes that when somebody walks in who's, who's you know, big man on campus kind of thing, you know. I thought I was the big man on campus. Well, now there's a, there's a better looking, bigger man on campus now, and you've just been supplanted, you know. Nobody likes that, you know. And that's what's happened to these Jews who were, when they'd walk in, revered, honored, respected, and they haven't lost any of that. What they've lost or what they feel they've lost is the exclusivity of that. There's nothing wrong with being a rabbi. A teacher should be respected. A, a, a man who comes in and has devoted his life to God should be. And there's nothing wrong with him accepting Christ as his Lord and Savior and still having that respect. But what they're concerned about is they don't want to share it. There's something about control. There's something about the ability to tell people or have them look at you with these fawning eyes, am I okay or am I not okay? Well, I don't know if you're okay or not. I'll decide that later kind of thing. And we have that throughout church history. Different people, and, that, and that's the thing. Church history is kind of funny. The world says, well, the church, the church, well, we got to be really careful about how we define the church. I mean, no offense, but half the church, most of its history were kind of crummy. And that's a nice word to use, you know. And at some times, there was like just a tiny little bit of good Christians in the church. But for the most part, it was pretty corrupt and ugly. And it's not that they were believers. It's that they were full of unbelieving, envious people just like this right here, but would occupy these buildings. And therefore, when you'd show up, there might be 10 out of the 500 that were actually following Christ. 
and being and had the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, and the rest of them were just occupiers of that building, and everybody just, well, they're the church because they came in and they acted like it and they didn't know any better. I mean, the people looking on would say, I, don't, I can't tell the difference between, you know, I didn't run into the 10 good Christians. I ran into 40 of the 500 bad ones, you know, kind of thing. So church history, when you talk about it, you know, no, you, you don't go into a village, tell them all to accept Christ, and then, all, then drown them so that they can't reject Christ. That's not the church. It may act like the church, or they may say that they're the church. You know, they may wear a cloth or whatever it is that they put on, the garb, but that doesn't mean they're the church. They've hidden themselves, they're wolves in sheep's clothing within the church, and they've killed a bunch of people. But don't make that mistake as to saying that that's Christ. It isn't. So these Jews, and I don't want to pick on them because there's been people like this in, in, in the churches ever since, and there still are to this day. There still are. They were not persuaded, becoming envious, and they took some of the evil men. It's very important to know and to evaluate your life and to see who your allies are. That'll tell you who you are. I may not know for sure whether what that politician or what this other person is saying, whether they really mean it or not. So I look at who they associate themselves with, and that tells me everything I need to know about that person for the most part. Why are you aligned with them if you say this? Because I know what they believe. They're very vocal about it. And you hang out with them and you do these things with them. You call them your best friend. And yet you're saying this over here. I, I have a hard time because that's my enemy over there. Those people are opposed to Christ. And you're saying one thing. And, and so by association, I can say, I don't know if you pick your friends very well. And these are great examples of that. These churchgoers, synagogue goers, I've gotten so upset with what's taking place in the hearts of many of the people that used to attend their synagogue. I'm trying not to put too fine a point on this, but have aligned themselves with evil men and point the finger at the genuine and said, they're causing the uproar. They're the ones that are not falling into line, Rome. They're the ones that are saying stuff against Caesar over here. They're saying there's another King Jesus. We don't think that is the idea. Our group of people don't think that. And every time I see this ecumenical stuff go on in Congress or the Senate or something like that, I'm like, oh my gosh, wolf, run. Just a bunch of wolves up there. Hi, I'm from this denomination, I'm from this denomination. Okay, that's okay. I don't mind that kind of ecumenicalism. There's nothing wrong with just having Jesus as the main thing. Hi, I'm of this religion and I'm of this religion. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. wait, 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 wait. What do you mean you're from different religions? What do you mean you got the Muslim standing here, the imam with his hat, and you got this other Christian guy with his hat, not to put too fine a point on it. And then you got these guys over here sitting cross-legged and they got a dot on their forehead and they've got their kind of garb that they're wearing. And they're all saying we worship the same God. Look, guy in the middle that says you're Christian, you ain't. You're not. Because I can tell by association with these two. And if you think these two serve the same God as you do, then you don't know the God that I know. And you don't believe in the Bible. And you don't trust Jesus. Because you believe there's lots of ways to heaven. And Jesus said the exact opposite of that. So I don't care what you call yourself, you are not the church. Nor are you saved. And you need Jesus. Very important. These Jews thought it was expedient for them to get lined up with some evil men 
from the marketplace, and they got a mob going. They got the whole thing in an uproar, and they began to attack the house of Jason. And these are the genuine believers. These are the born-again, spirit-filled believers in the, in, in the city, and they're attacking them and sought to bring them out. Now, they can't find Paul and Cyrus because Paul and Cyrus aren't done yet. But So they find poor Jason, which is a good thing. I'm proud of Jason. Jason was harboring fugitives as far as I'm concerned, and I'm very very glad that his name is mentioned in the book of Acts, and I know he is too, and he'll never regret that. That day, he might have been thinking, what is happening, you know? I didn't say anything. Paul and Silas said it, and they stayed with me, and I I don't want to say that he said that. Maybe he said, yeah, I like Paul and Silas, and I'm with them to the end, you know? Hopefully, that's the kind of guy he was. Either way, Jason's name is immortalized as a guy in chapter 17 of the book of Acts that housed the great uh, Apostle Paul and his you know, buddy Silas and got the whole world on fire in Thessalonica for Jesus Christ. He supported their ministry. And it's mentioned here. And he even had to kind of get, I don't know, persecuted a little bit. They dragged him. I don't know what that looked like. But they also kept his stuff so that he'd show up in court when it was time to show up in court. You know, they, they took surety from him. They grabbed some of his stuff so they made sure he could, he could be, you know, he wasn't going to run off into the night kind of thing. They're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. You know, it's okay to act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Very good. Very good. And they weren't. When they just said Jesus is king, he's Lord of all. Well, that that bothers people that are kings, that they're lords. They don't like that. They don't like to hear that. Even though they were the best citizens Rome's ever had, (laughs) honestly, they didn't like it. So saying there's another King Jesus. And they troubled the crowd, and they get everybody stirred up. And you remember, the crowd, it's the crowd. There's always a crowd of people that really don't have an opinion about anything. They just want to be mad. And so you can get anybody stirred up. Don't you think this is horrible? You know, I think that's horrible too. You know, and they they didn't think it through. They just know that you're mad, and so maybe they should be mad too. So they're just going to be mad because I like being mad, you know, kind of thing. Being mad's good. Makes people feel good for some reason. So there's always these crowds, there's always these mobs, there's always a group of people that will come together and say, yeah, and I don't know why we're here, but yeah, you know. I think about the Rittenhouse trial that's going on right now, you know. I can say too much about it, I just, I, I, just, I just, as we're going through it, then I'm watching some videos, I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot that our whole world was on fire. I mean, I didn't forget but I'm talking about gas prices now and I'm thinking about food and I'm thinking about our farm and making a chicken coop better than it is, you know, that kind of thing. Then I see this video, I'm like, I forgot our all these huge cities were on fire and people were just breaking through these things and taking whatever they wanted to and just walking off at home with television sets and Louis Vuitton bags and and Nike shoes and, and then killing everybody along the way and punching people and beating up horses for cop horses. And I forgot all that, you know? It's amazing how, how quickly you forget these things. There's always a mob. Half that mob didn't care less about what was going on with the, with the trial that started it all. I don't even want to bring it up. They just wanted stuff. And so they got stirred up and saw an opportunity and they joined and hey, it made the mob who organized it look better because it looked like they had a bunch of people involved when actually most of the people that were there were just for stuff. They could care less about the trial. They just wanted stuff. And an opportunity to be an anarchist, you know. Let's just be crazy. Let's purge, kind of thing. Terrible. Well, if you're a preacher, if you're a 
somebody in the church or somebody in the synagogue and you find yourself lined up with that group, you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong side. And so they were. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, and this is important. Because I find, um, and I'm not saying this is exclusive to the Midwest, although I think it has a lot to do with the Midwest. When you come to the Midwest and you're, and I'm from the Midwest, I'm from Sioux City, Iowa, just to think I didn't come from like a coast and think, you backwards hicks. No, I'm a hick. I was born here. But when you come to share the gospel here in the Midwest, it's a little bit different because the gospel isn't, doesn't start with, did you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? You start your gospel message off with that, and everybody you look at will say, mm-hmm. Oh. Did you know that you had to believe on him for salvation? I did. Yep, I knew that. All of you know that? Mm-hmm. We all do. <sighs> did you know that you had to repent of your sins and turn from them? Yes. Yes, we did. Oh, well, I don't know what I'm doing here then. I don't even know what I'm here to talk about. No, you have to start the gospel off with something like this. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Do you do the will of your Father here on earth? Most of the time. Do you know what the will of the Father is here on earth? Can you give me a scripture? Can you give me a passage? Can you give me anything this last week that you did was in accordance with God's word and, you know, was what you should do as a Christian. Well, I helped some old lady with a can of, you know, beans from the top shelf at Hy-Vee. Does that count? No, it doesn't. That's just normal. You've got to take them to this place. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice wickedness. That's how you have to start the gospel off here. Do you know that many of the people that attend church, most of the people in Maryville, most of the people in Skidmore, most of the people in any of your towns are going to hell? That can't be. Most of them go to church. It doesn't change the fact that Matthew 7, 13, just a few verses prior says, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Most people are going to hell. The question we have to ask is, are you madly in love with Jesus Christ? Is he your master passion? Do you live for him? Is that all you want to do? Is it your custom to talk about Jesus when, it's, when the opportunity arises? Is it everything to you? <laughs> is your work a ministry? <laughs> is your family a ministry? Is, is everything an opportunity to talk about Jesus with people? Well, that's a little extreme. No. No, that's normal Book of Acts church stuff. And when we think that what we're reading here in the book of Acts is extreme or for a certain time, place, and period, and that it doesn't apply today, we've lost something. Somewhere along the line, we've gotten so dull of hearing, something's happened to us to where we've now looked at this complacent, quiet, mind-your-own-business church, and we think that's normal, and that this is pretty extreme stuff. Well, no, this is normal. This is normal. It's so important that we understand that there are going to be some that just need to be brought back to life. People need to be confronted with the fact that, no, just attendance doesn't qualify you. 
Owning a Bible doesn't qualify you. Being baptized doesn't qualify you. That is not how you get to heaven. None of it. It is your heart. It is your mind. It is the renewing. It is being born again. That's the key. So Paul finds himself in this area amongst these people where he has separated. He's come into a synagogue and those who truly wanted the Messiah are following and listening to what he had to say. And those who didn't want to have anything to do with the suffering Messiah are still attending synagogue, but have, have called them evil and them wicked and them crazy and them turning the world upside down. But actually all Paul and Silas have done is turn the world right side up. This is what it's supposed to look like. But that's not how we've done it. That's not what we believe. That's not how we've been taught. No, but it's in God's word. It's not like I'm coming up, Paul says, with some kind of extravagant lie. It's not men's words that I'm trying to convince you with. I'm giving you scripture. You must be born again. You cannot go to heaven unless you're born again. It has to be a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It does not transfer from your grandparents to your parents to your kids. Faith doesn't work that way. Every single human being has to make a decision to follow Christ and not just follow him like he's my badge or he's, I'm tattooed with him. It means, no, I, my heart is his. I understand what he's done for me personally, and I accept him. Verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Go on, we got this. Get out of here. We need to keep you ministering. Now, sometimes Paul and Silas would go right back into the town because they liked to fight. They weren't afraid of that. They wanted to go, let's spiritually uh, uproot these people and, and, and get rid of all Satan's stuff going on in here. This time they let them go and they agreed, let's get out of here. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. <laughs> right afterwards, they go to Berea. Now, these were more fair-minded than those of Thessalonica uh, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They were fair. Well, if this is true, it'll line up with God's word. And they went afterwards. After that. It was a good, good talk. And Paul, thank you for that. And then they went home and they opened their scrolls. Yep, this is exactly what it says. I don't know how we missed that before, but there it is in black and white or in whatever color of ink they had. There it is, you know. They searched the scriptures to see if it was true. That's fair. Very fair. And Paul was smart enough to when he ministered, which he's not going to be in the next town, by the way, he takes them right to the scriptures, right to the passages, talks about where the prophets spoke about the suffering Messiah. And if you can't explain it and you don't think my explanations is right, then you explain it. Tell me what it means. I'm not here to interpret it for you. I'm telling you this is what it says. If you don't think it says that, then you tell me what it means. And as the Bereans are looking at it, saying that's exactly what it means. There's no other way to interpret this. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so they received it with gladness, and they were blessed because of that. And so there's a much bigger church that starts here. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few Greeks, a lot of Greeks, and prominent women as well as men. Their husbands came along too. They weren't worried about it. They were on board. But, <laughs> there's always a but, seems like. When the Jews from Thessalonica, so they weren't just happy back in Thessalonica to chase down Jason and to try to accuse Paul and Silas and try to shut this thing down. They hear that this is going on in Berea, and so they show up. Well, come on, guys, we're going to Berea, you know. We're going to Skidmore, and we're going to tell them that these guys are crazy. Just give it a rest, guys. 
When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away. You're on fire, dude. You got to go to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. Paul, you're a hot commodity. You're a hot potato. You can see him going, you need to go. Timothy's like, they don't know what we look like. We're going to stay here and kind of get this thing going, get this thing established. So Timothy and Silas stay back. So those who conducted Paul, like an underground railroad to get Paul out of there, brought him to Athens <laughs> and receiving a command uh, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So he goes to Athens and he says, hey guys, catch up with me. Now, I love this. Yeah. Um, let me read this verse to you though. Matthew chapter three, verse 11, talking about Paul being kind of on fire. And, and, and that's not weird. It's not exclusive to him. I mean, I'm kind of going back to what I just said about what normal Christianity is. Wherever you place me, I cause problems spiritually as a Christian. I just do. I'm supposed to. Oh, I hope we have a Thanksgiving that's just peaceful. Then don't invite me. Because I'm going to be thankful and I'm going to thank Jesus Christ. I've got this guy that I follow. And he's good. He's a motivational guy. And there's nothing wrong with the guy. He's just not a believer. And he's got some great things. And what he's sharing with the people, these masses, intermingled with cuss words and all these other things that he does, is biblical stuff, truth. But he's not ascribing it to the right God. He's not ascribing it to anybody. And so then when he tells his people, his followers, his gang, and I'm one of them, I don't follow him, but I'm like, I answered him on this one. He says, what you need to do this morning is you need to take a deep breath, a deep cleansing breath. You need to let it out and you need to say, thank you. I responded, I said, who? <laughs> who? To myself? Hey, you. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Thanks, you're welcome, you know, kind of thing. Well, that's dumb. What a waste of time that is. Who do you want us to thank? No response, of course, because it's a mass email or whatever, but I put it out there. Someone's got to read that. Someone in his entourage has to read that. Who are we thanking? What a funny thing it is to try to have this spiritual awakening in these Moments of peace and serenity and inner whatever without God. It's just you having counsel with yourself. You're a great person. Thank you for saying that. You know, I mean, really? I want my self worth to come from someone much more qualified to judge self worth than myself. I want to know what God thinks of me. And I know we all do. When I read his word and I, and I think about the thing, I was walking outside. I know I got to get on with this, but I was walking outside. I was coming back into the building and it was just, it was dark in the, in the moon. Did anybody see the moon tonight? It's one, it's one of those nights when you know it's going to be cold because it's absolutely super clear out. You're like, oh, it's going to be a cold night. That didn't cross my mind. I looked up. I said, gee whiz, it really doesn't matter, does it? And he didn't answer me or anything. But I'm like, I'm in the sense that it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter what happens here. I just got really, really small in a good way. Thankful that I'm small. But I looked up. I said, ah, this is just really cool. The clouds were going across it. Not in a creepy way, like a Halloween-y kind of thing, but like just really pretty. Just beautiful, you know? And it just caused me to pause on the way back in and say, this is going to be a good night. Because we're going to talk about you, the one who did that and does that. 
and thinks about us so much that you do stuff like that, you know? That's where our self-worth comes from, him, not myself. So these guys are searching and they're reading, and Paul knows this about his God. He's been down that long-robed, long-beard, pharisaical life, and it led him to nothing. It was all dung as far as he was concerned. What I have now is incomparable. And so wherever they plant Paul, he lights a fire, spiritually lights a fire. Every one of us needs to be lighting fires no matter where we go. Oh, there comes J.D. the Believer. I love that. I don't want to ever recall, there's, there's, there's J.D. the real estate agent, Ugh, you know. Mm, he's going to want me to sell my house. And by the way, if anybody wants to sell a house, <laughs> I tell you what, man, the market is dead right now. <clears throat> Gives me more time to study. That's how I see it. Now, I want to be the guy that lights the world on fire. Wherever you go, people ask questions. Hey, you're a pastor, aren't you? Yep. I got this question for you. Yes. Let's go. <laughs> Blow that fire. Let's go. Paul, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, John says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We all know that, right? It's the next part. End with fire. There's a difference? The Holy Spirit, when he comes upon them in the upper room, it's like tongues of fire come upon them. I don't know. When the Holy Spirit comes upon a believer, there is the Holy Spirit that comes upon them, and then there's this baptism with fire. Now, okay, is that the purifying work of God in my life and, and getting Maybe, but maybe it's more like Paul. Wherever I put this kid, now that I baptize him with my Holy Spirit, he's a hot firebrand. Wherever Paul goes, hey, let's put him in Thessalonica. Oh, get him. That's hot. Everywhere he goes, he's on fire. I love that. So he shows up in Athens, and this, well, I'm not done with my cross reference as well. In Luke 12, I got to run through him. Luke 12, 49, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, Jesus says. Hebrews 1, 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? That's normal for Christians and the, and the messengers of God to be fire wherever they go. Okay, so he's sitting in Athens, and he's supposed to be like incognito and waiting for Timothy and Silas. Hey, come and get me. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, can you see him? Just walking around, you know. It says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. He could not let it go. He couldn't just experience Athens, you know, the, all the history here. Oh, look at the fruits that they have and the carts and the architecture. Look at the beautiful carvings. Just look around saying, these guys need Jesus. There's another idol and another one. Oh, my goodness. It's like wherever I go, there's another idol. Okay, I've had enough. And he's not waiting for Timothy and Silas anymore. He says, that's it. I've got to talk. I've got to light this place on fire. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? There's this guy over here. He's talking gibberish. Let's see what he has to say. Hey, you, you over there. And Paul's like, oh, here we go. 
Now, the Epicureans and, the, uh, and, the philo- and the, uh, these philosophers, the Stoic philosophers, one of them, the Epicureans, they live for pat- pleasure. That's their job. They just, hey, you know, whatever. If it feels good, you do it. We, they love that philosophy kind of thing. Then there's the other guys. The Stoic guys are like, hey, whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. Nothing we can do about it. They're Stoic. Yeah, it's perfect. You know, well, your wife left you? Yeah, my wife left me. Yeah, it's going to happen anyway. Nothing you can do about it. I know. And so they just walk around, you know, with this Stoic attitude. And these Epicureans are like, man, isn't life great? What a hangover, dude. You know, that was them. So they encounter this guy, Jesus, or Paul, and he's off there babbling about some God. So we want to hear what you have to say. We want to hear it. Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. It's different. And they took him. And brought him to the Areopagus, which is where they did this stuff, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is or this new teaching is of which you speak? For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. These guys were collectors of knowledge. Nothing more dangerous. I am all for studying and I'm all for that. But if you never encounter Jesus or have a personal saving relationship with him, if you're not on fire for God, then it's a waste of time. What a waste. There's collectors of new information. Hey, you've got something different. We've never heard this before. Tell us a story, old man. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So like a guy's laying in bed night. What am I going to say tomorrow at the Areopolis? I don't know. Maybe we should talk about unicorns. Yeah, unicorns. And just making stuff up. And then they get up and say, I have a new thing. Oh, all right, Bob, what do you got? Unicorns. Uh, we heard that last week. You know, nothing new there. What a dangerous place to be in. Second Timothy warns us about that. Chapter three, verses one through nine. But know this: in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient. I know you know this, but there's a part I want to focus on when we get to it. It's a laundry list of what these guys are like, these people are like, disobedient to parents, they're unthankful, they're unholy, they're unloving, they're unforgiving, they're slanders, they're without self-control, they're brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So he's going to continue to describe these people, don't forget that, we're describing that group, those people. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins. Not just women, but men too. And we're going to see that right here. That's what they do. They try to bring them captive. And here's the key. Here's the most important part. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Constantly hearing, constantly reading, constantly going down this road or that road. And, and it's for the sake of collecting knowledge. It's for the sake of argument. It's for the sake of having uh, an intellectual conversation where the other person looks stupid at the end of the conversation. I know people like that. Well, I've been studying, and I know that you study the Bible too, but I've also studied the Bible, and here's what I've discovered, and they try to make you look stupid, but you've read the Bible and you didn't get anything else out of it, but that, that's what you learned from it? Always learning, always reading, always, and you'd never come to the truth. Now, Janus and Jambres resisted Moses. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifested to all, 
as theirs also was. Janice and Jambers are the guys that made the snake and picked it up and said they could do the same thing that Moses could do. That's who those guys are. The guys that Pharaoh had on his uh, payroll. Don't be intimidated by people that know the Bible better than you, but don't have a relationship with him. Don't be intimidated by that. Um, they're at a disadvantage to you. They don't have peace in their heart. They don't have the forgiveness of their sins. There's no rest. Whether they say it or not, they still have guilt and shame on there because there's no way to alleviate yourself of guilt and shame other than through Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. So they still carry that whether they show it or not. They still have all the attributes that they're concealing from you that a, a, a sinful, a prodigal son in the pigmire, you know, wallowing around out there has. They may clean themselves up. They may dress. They may be able to use a better vocabulary than you do. But that doesn't mean that they know Christ and it doesn't mean that they're better off or that they're superior to you. You have hope. You have joy. You have a fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit that nobody else can get unless they have the Holy Spirit. It's frustrating for them because they believe they can attain the same thing that you have because they resist the truth. I think I can have all that fruit of the Holy Spirit without actually getting the Holy Spirit. And so they desperately try to produce that in their lives. And that is what the world is trying to do. I want joy. I want peace. I want to be able to endure. I want to be a strong person. I want to be, you know, and so for the, for the woman who doesn't want Jesus, but she wants to be strong, she worships Gaia the mother goddess Gaia, you know, but she's miserable and she knows it. Even though she goes to Pilates or yoga or whatever she does to make herself look, you know, oh, look at me, I'm a strong woman, I can roar. No, you need Jesus and you're laden down with guilt and shame and there's no way to alleviate yourself. The man, I do nothing but uh, I go to MMA fights and I watch all these guys fight and I'm in and I know everything about it, you know, and you should see my fantasy football team and they're all this and then, yeah. Yeah, your little boy inside is crying and weeping and hoping that you can find a way out of this life. It's all the same. Always learning, never able to come to the truth. Guys, you have the answer. We have the answer. We have Jesus Christ. This world desperately needs that. And Paul sees that in these people. I see that you're worshiping all these other gods. I see that you're trying. I see that you're trying this marble god or this gold god or this silver god or this one. And that's what he's going to eventually get to. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men in Athens, I perceive in all things that you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. It says, To the unknown God. You got, you got Guy over here. You got this God over here. You got Hermes. You got all these other gods. I don't know if I'm using the right names or not. And there's Greek and then there's two sets of the same gods, but different names. I see all this, but I want to talk to you about the one uh, that you don't know, and I'm about to introduce you to him. Because it's obvious they have this unknown God in case they forgot anybody, you know? I worship all these gods, and I worship the unknown God just in case I missed somebody out there, you know? He kind of is the catch-all. Let me talk to you about him. Really? He's kind of like the miscellaneous file over here. Yeah, I know him. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, which is why he uses that word and doesn't say Jesus, because it's on the inscription, okay, to the unknown God. God, I'm going to talk about him now, who made the world and everything in it, that's new. 
Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, that's new, does not dwell in temples made with hands, that's a mind blower for them. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation. Now, what he's trying to do is saying, you guys kind of know this already. It's obvious. You live in it. You breathe it. You just never acknowledge it out loud. But it's obvious that we all came from one place. That's one of the things that Darwinism and and evolution has a hard time uh, reconciling as they try to put this away. They see these different animal groups, and this animal has wings, but this animal has wings too, and yet they don't ever meet in the chain. They're two different groups. So does that mean that the evolution of wings had to happen accidentally twice? I mean, this was astronomical odds. How do we get this happening twice? And they can't comprehend it. And as they're looking at the, the closeness and similarity of all the DNA and of all the people, it's just really hard not to say, yeah, it started with two people. It's two. Nobody, people didn't grow from apes over here. And then on this other continent that's never been in contact over here, they happen to have the same evolutionary experience over here. And two more people grew up with apes. They're starting to realize, no, this really came down to two people. They can't. Reconcile that so we don't talk about it. <laughs> you know, you're a science denier. No, I'm actually really curious as to what your explanation is for it as a scientist. Well, we don't have one. Okay. And even though you have all the vocabulary and the better education, it seems like I know more than you do right now. And you do. Well, that's what he's trying to do. This God that you kind of worship as the miscellaneous God. He's the one that made everybody from one blood. Oh, that would make sense. Every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, you were born at this time and in this location for a purpose, for a reason. Because that's got to be the question. The philosophers know this. They, the deep thinkers, they lay there going, okay, how can this be? This is just so strange. You know, you think about uh, people, where did they come from, and all these other gods. But yeah, but who made them, and why do we, you know, they know this stuff, but when you go to church at these gods' houses, at these temples, you don't talk like that, because that means you're an unbeliever. You haven't given yourself over to the god of rock, you know, whatever he is. And so you're made fun of, so you just go there and say, I love you, and uh, here's, your, here's my pear, or whatever you give them. And so they don't talk about this stuff. So when Paul brings this stuff up, they're all going, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. It's exactly what I was thinking about last night. We all had to come from one place. Why am I pointing now? I mean, why do I live right now? Is it just to throw pears at this God over here or is it something else? And he's giving them hope. He's giving them a reason. There's a purpose for your existence. And here's why he's done all that. One nation, pre-appointed times, and given them a place to dwell that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Although you say he's an unknown God, I'm telling you, this God that you don't know wants to know you and wants you to know him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Your own poets talk about that. So he's bringing some culture. We do talk about that, like we're all from one God. Why do we worship all these little gods, all these different things? And he's trying to tell them the God that you're searching for is right there because you live and breathe and exist in him. 
You're made in his image. You're made like offspring. And that's his next step. Your poets say he's your offspring. You know that you're all from one blood. The next logical conclusion is this. Therefore, since we are the offspring of this God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. He's pointing to all these other gods. He's not that, is he? Well, no, because I'm not that. That's right. You're better than that. You're more than that. You're, you think, therefore you are. That thing doesn't think, therefore he is. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. We've got to think of God like us. We are in his image. We're his offspring. The divine nature that created all of us has to be better than all these things. <sighs> Something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. He's, looked, he's overlooked your you know, foolishness with all these other gods, but now he wants you to know who he is. He wants you to worship him. Now, ignorance is a tough thing to bring up to somebody who doesn't know. There is no nice way to put it. I'm here to tell you something that I know and you don't. What are you saying? I'm stupid? No, I'm just saying you're ignorant. <laughs> that doesn't go over well. All ignorance means is that you don't know, but now you do. When I, when I was in first grade, I didn't know that, and I don't know math, I forgot where we were, but five times five equals 25. When I was in first grade, I didn't know that. I was ignorant of it. But when I got into second or third grade, I figured it out. And now I know that five times five is 25. But before I knew that, I was ignorant. That's all he's saying. You guys are just ignorant of it because you'd never heard, but here you are, and here I am. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's getting, you hear him gearing up? The God of unknown, the God I'm talking to. He's done all these things, we're made in his image. He's really doing a great job taking them from knowing nothing about any kind of religion, about Judaism or anything, and he's bringing them to this place. And he's about to drop the bomb, the name of Jesus. By the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That was the grabber. What? Yes. The exclamation point upon the, uh, the, the, the Messiah, the one that God sent to save us and to introduce us to, the living, to be an example for us, he, he proved it by raising him from the dead, and that's where he lost the whole crowd. A dead guy rose up from the dead? No, no, no. And when they heard this, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter tomorrow. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius and and Aeropagite, A woman named Damaris and others with them. Very small, like a handful of people said, yeah, I think that's right. And everybody else was like, yeah, we'll talk about this tomorrow. Very few. Now, the next place Paul goes to next week is Corinth. This was a very defeating moment for him, I believe, personally. When Paul had a captive audience, they all wanted to know he had the perfect prop, this false God, unknown God over here. He had the opportunity to bring it. Bring it, you know, preach. And he gets like five people. In, in Greece, you know, in Athens of all places. And so he ends up in Corinth as he goes to this place and he stays here for a very long time. Longer than he stays anyplace else. And this is where he writes a lot of his letters to the other churches. 
This was a very difficult time for him. I don't know what it was, why he didn't get right to Christ, but he says that when he writes to the Corinthian church, when I came to you, I didn't know anything but Christ and him crucified. He went right to it. He went right to the name of Jesus. He went right to the crucifixion. He went right to the reason and didn't try to appeal to them in any other way, not with man's wisdom, but with the gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where we leave off tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. Uh, we want to be on fire. If we haven't been baptized with your Holy Spirit, we ask for that tonight. And if we have been, we need it again. Pray that you continually fill us with your Holy Spirit. And also, light us up, Lord, on fire. We live in the last days. The world is confused. The world is hopeless. The world has no idea what's waiting for them. And they want to know. They don't want to be lost. They don't want to be left in the, in the dark. Help us to be light and salt. Help us to be bright. And to wherever we go, we just start spiritual fires. People come to know you. People are confronted with sin. People are confronted with the truth. People are confronted with a choice that they need to make before they die. To either trust in this way of salvation or trust in themselves. But at least they'll know that there's another option other than trusting in themselves. That you have provided a way of escape. And uh, so, Lord, help us to talk about Jesus wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.